Well, good morning, church. Happy Easter. I had some people asking this morning, who's the guy in the tie and the suit? And it is indeed me, Trevor Miller. Um, I'm one of the pastors here at Mount Horeb, and it's an honor to be with you this morning on this Easter morning. Uh, I got put in the traditional room. I don't know how it happened, but I'm here with y'all, and I'm excited to be with y'all. Um, if it is your uh, first time here today on Easter, I just want to say thank you for coming and joining us. We're glad to have you here in this space with us. Uh, as we come together for Easter morning, it is today that all around the world, all around the globe, there are churches gathering to remember and to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have packed this place out. I walked across the campus this morning and our contemporary space is full. Our student room right now is full of people and overflow. I recruited some to come up in the balcony during this service if they could handle the pastor, I said. So um, we're so glad to have all the energy here this morning. And I just want to let you know, we do this every week, so I'd love for you to come and join us again next Sunday. It'd be awesome to see you once again. I heard a story this week about a woman who was driving to church with her family early on an Easter morning a few years ago. On the way, she was telling her children the whole story, the whole Easter story about how Jesus so loved the world that he's willing to come to the earth and to be crucified, to die on a cross and his blood to wash away our sin. And she finished the story with the kind of triumphant ending, the explanation that Jesus, though he was laid in a tomb, he didn't stay in the tomb, but he rose from the grave and he rose again. And this is the day that we celebrate Jesus' coming back to life, she said. And right away, her son, Kevin, who was three in the back of the vehicle, piped right up and he said, that's great. Will he be in church this morning? And great question, Kevin. And I think yes. I think he is. I think Christ is present with us this morning by the power of his Holy Spirit, even here right now. You know, each and every year as pastors we come together and as a church we come together to decide how we will preach on Easter morning. It's a bit of a daunting task, to be honest with you. This is my 16th year in full-time ministry, 16th Easter in full-time ministry. It's my 38th Easter uh, in existence. And sometimes I wonder, how do you come up with something fresh and new for Easter? How do you kind of take a new twist on an old story, the miracle of the resurrection? And the truth is, maybe nothing new can be said. Maybe it is what it is, but it's a great story, the greatest story that's ever told. And so this morning, I would invite you to have open hearts and open minds once again to hear it, maybe with a, with a fresh feel, with a new openness to what God wants to do. And maybe, just maybe, Jesus will be with us here this morning in church and we'll meet you in a special way. Have you ever been in the presence of somebody famous? Like somebody that is a special person, someone everyone knows except for you. Like everybody's kind of in on who this person is, but for whatever reason, you're not aware of who this person is. And you've had a brush with fame, but it's gone largely unnoticed because you didn't recognize the well-known individual. A few years ago, we went to Carowinds with a group of high school students. There were 75 students and a few chaperones. Who wants to sign up for that? Uh, you can come with us. We took 75 students to Carowinds for the day, and we ran amok, rode every ride we could, ate all the stuff that we could, enjoyed ourselves thoroughly. And I remember one time, about mid-afternoon, I was walking through Carowinds with a group of students surrounding me, when all of a sudden we came across another entourage that was coming the other direction. And so I didn't think anything of it. I waved my, my hand at them and kept on walking. And a few steps later, I realized that there were no more students with me. They'd all gone to the person that we had just passed as we were going through the park. So I turned around and I looked where all my students were now getting autographs and taking pictures, and I still didn't know who the person was. I'm like, what is going on? I, mean, I, didn't, I didn't think I was that cool, but I didn't know I was that uncool either. So they all left and went to this other person. When I looked over, it turns out later on I was told, this is the person that was in Carowinds with. I'll show you a picture. Now for some of the room, you're like, who's that guy? <laughs> I know. See, that's my point. But for some of you in the room, you know this is Dustin from Stranger Things. 
I still didn't get it. So all my students were elated that he was in the park and I was just confused. But I was this close to being in the presence of somebody famous, somebody that people knew, somebody that was some kind of special individual and I had no idea. It was a classic case of mistaken identity. I could have easily mistaken him for anybody else in the world because I had no clue who he was. See, the Easter story actually has within it, embedded inside of it, a, a classic uh, case of mistaken identity as well. A brush with greatness that goes largely unnoticed by most within the story. You see, a little backstory before we get into Luke chapter 23, the Easter story that we'll look at. Uh, the backstory is simply this. Jesus came to earth. We believe as Christians that he came as the incarnation. It was God with flesh on. We celebrate this at Christmas. Actually, if you want to come back next year for Christmas, this is what we celebrate then. And when Jesus came back in the incarnation, God with flesh on, he walked the earth. The Bible tells us he, he healed the hurting, he fed the hungry, he cast out evil, he, he uh, set free the captives. And eventually the Bible says that the full force of the Roman government, the religious establishment, and Satan and all of the evil in the world came down on Jesus for his claim for being divine and the true king of the world. He was a threat to the stability and control within Jerusalem at that time, and so he was arrested. He was unfairly trialed, and eventually he was crucified, and he was sentenced to death. And after being beaten and bloody and bruised, he was forced to carry his wooden cross all the way up a hill called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And it was there that the Romans inflicted a brutal form of punishment called crucifixion. In the book of Luke, in the, book of Luke the author records the final days of Jesus. It tells a lot of it in detail. And Luke tells us about the case of mistaken identity that takes place at Golgotha at this first Easter weekend. In Luke chapter 23, verses 32 through 38, here's what the Bible says. It says, Two other men besides Jesus, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there. Along with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he has saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, then save yourself. There was written a notice above him that said this, this is the king of the Jews. Within the first few verses of this story, the accounts within the Gospels, all of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell us that when Jesus was crucified, he was crucified along with two other individuals, one on his right and one on his left. Luke adds this important detail within the passage by saying that they were criminals. In fact, some translations say that they were thieves, and they were crucified with Jesus as well. So there are three men. Two of them are deserving of the punishment that they're getting, according to Roman law. The third one, though, is innocent of any wrongdoing. Jesus, who's in the middle of the two of them. Now, the classic case of mistaken identity takes place here. There are three different ways that we know people didn't fully understand who Jesus was and what he had come for. The first thing is Jesus' prayer for those who are, who are crucifying him. He prays, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Jesus, in his prayer, identifies that these Roman soldiers don't fully understand who he is. They see him as simply a Jewish troublemaker, a terrorist against Roman rule, and so they decide to crucify him. They're carrying out orders. They don't understand what he's here for. Secondly, the people who are watching wondered to themselves, if this really truly is the Messiah, the chosen one, then certainly he could save himself. 
You see, the Jews have been waiting for centuries for a Messiah to come. And their understanding of what this Messiah would do is he would come in power. He would overthrow every government around and put them back into control and back on top. They expected this Messiah to be a warrior. And the man hanging on the cross did not look like one of those. Third, there was a sign that had been fashioned and put over the top of Jesus' head. And it simply read this. This is the king of the Jews. It was a way of mocking him. Because a true king would be one seated on a throne, ruling and reigning over his people. A king was powerful, but Jesus looked powerless. All three of these signs point to the fact that no one really understood who Jesus was. Though they were in close proximity to the divine, no one seemed to understand. No one seemed to get it. And before we ridicule them or point out their faults here and their unawareness, I think it's easy for us to recognize, too, that oftentimes we become in the presence of Jesus and we don't recognize him either. Luke then, 23, verse 39 through 43, says this. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him, at Jesus. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and save us. But the other criminal rebuked him and said, Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Verse 43, Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. The story zeroes in here in verse 39 on these three who are hanging on the cross. The two thieves, the two criminals, and then Jesus himself. There's a frustrated criminal, an angry criminal on one of Jesus' side who begins to hurl insults at him. And he begins to ridicule him. But the other criminal speaks up and silences him in the middle of it. He says, listen, we are getting what we deserve for the crimes that we've committed. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he says something very, very important. This man looks at Jesus. He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Of all of the people in the story, the only one who seems to understand who Jesus truly is, is this one criminal, this one thief. He seems to understand Jesus as the true king. And Jesus' response proves that he got it right. Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Two criminals. Two thieves, each with their own perspective on who Jesus is and who this was, this man who was hanging between them. And this is the point that cannot be missed this morning. If you hear nothing else that I say today, I want you to hear this. That at Easter, it is the time of year, every year, where many of us come and we come in here on a Sunday morning and we are given the opportunity to ask ourselves the question once again, how do we see Jesus? Who do we believe him to be? What do we do with this story about this man who was crucified? and killed, and buried in a tomb, but who didn't stay in the tomb, but who rose from the grave, what do we do with this? You see, one thief saw failure. When he saw Jesus hanging on the cross, he saw failure, because Jesus didn't meet the expectations that he had for rescue. He's angry, he's frustrated, and Jesus' death on the cross looks to him like nothing but failure and defeat. And for that reason, he missed, even though he's right next to him, he doesn't see him for who he truly is. I'm afraid that some of us in the room this morning, we have the same kind of situation going on. There's an expectation for what we thought Jesus would look like when he showed up in our life, but he's not met that expectation. And for some of us, we've decided that we can't, we can't see him for who he truly is. We thought Jesus would cure that cancer. We thought that he would restore that relationship. He'd provide for those bills. He would heal that loved one. He would calm the pandemic. He would take away our depression, but he, but he didn't. And from that perspective, it seems that Jesus has failed. 
the disappointments, the pain, the hurt, the unmet hopes. The first thief hanging next to Jesus, God in the flesh, feet from the Savior of the universe, missed who Jesus was. Because what looked like failure was actually the headwaters of victory. What looked like silence, like absence, like apathy, was Jesus taking on himself the brokenness of the world to make all things right once again. But there's another thief. Instead of seeing failure, this thief saw victory. Rather than hurling insults at Jesus, this man recognizes who Jesus is as true king. In spite of his suffering, he saw Jesus as his only hope. He trusted that somehow whatever was taking place on the cross was going to result in a new kingdom, a restored world, and he wanted to be a part of it. And so he says, remember me in your kingdom. See, one thief couldn't see past the suffering that was happening at that point in time. He couldn't see past the cross. He couldn't see far enough to recognize that re- resurrection was coming. The second thief could see past what was taking place here and recognize there was new life on the other side of this. You see, the main reason the author makes the point that these two people, these two men who are hanging on each side of Jesus, they're thieves and they're criminals, is because the final words that Jesus says to this man, it makes them even more powerful. Jesus says, you'll be with me in paradise, despite your brokenness, despite your past, despite your circumstances, despite your pain, you will be with me in this kingdom that God is bringing into the world for all eternity. And the invitation is given to this man based clearly not on any of his deeds, but based on the discretion of Jesus alone because of the man's faith. Here's what I want you to hear this morning. This invitation that is given to this man is the same invitation that is given to you and to me this morning. Like these two men, you, me, we are broken, sinful people. It's the backdrop of the entire Easter story. It's the backdrop of this wonderful day. Without acknowledging this truth, we cannot fully embrace the beauty of the cross until we see what's behind it all. As an eighth grade kid, I was in Mexico, Monterey, Mexico for the summer. My parents were in charge of taking students into Mexico multiple times a year, groups of 80 students. And so, of course, as one of their children, I got to go each and every time. And so I was in Mexico all summer long for many, many years. And I'll never forget, as an eighth grade kid, I, I was in this dump in Mexico where there were families that were living there. They were li- literally eking out an existence from everything they could find from the dump trailers and trucks that would come in and put everything on the ground. They were given blocks and pallets and cardboard. They made homes. They had a whole city inside of this dump. And so myself, along with all these students and a mission organization we had partnered with, we were there. And I was standing there with a shovel in this hole. We were digging a latrine for at least a little bit of sanitation within the community for them to have a place to go to the bathroom. I remember as an eighth grade kid looking around me and seeing kind of the heinous side of the world. Some of the most broken places I've ever been in my entire life. And these people that we were serving and we were helping, we'd just been in a worship service with them 20 minutes earlier before I'm standing in this hole digging a toilet. And in that worship service, I watched them sing and praise God. They had nothing of earthly possession, but they had something that I didn't have. There was a confidence that whatever was happening around them was not the end of the story. That God was active and alive and still moving, was going to make all things right once again. I had no understanding of this. Here's the problem. I had been in church my entire life. I'd been to every vacation Bible school. I'd read the Bible multiple times. I'd been to Sunday school. My parents were in ministry. I'd done all the things. I'd been in close proximity to Jesus, but I'd never fully seen him before. 
I had mistaken him for somebody else. And as an eighth grade kid standing there with shovel in hand for the very first time in my life, I saw that there was brokenness around me and there was brokenness inside of me. And I needed someone to come and take that away and to heal me. My life transformed in a dump in Mexico because I saw God for the very first time. You see, the crucifixion, the resurrection, it's a historic event. It took place in the past, but it changes our present reality. And it has future implications. So we were saved by Jesus' death and resurrection, and we are now being saved by his power through the Holy Spirit, and we will be saved by the triumphant return of Christ. It's the only hope that we have of experiencing new life, of experiencing full life, true meaning, enjoying eternal life. It's through the cross. We can never earn it. No amount of church attendance, no amount of tithe, no good deeds, no hours of Bible study or passionate prayer. It's the cross. It is the cross. It is the reason the thief on the cross was assured of salvation. And it's the only reason we are assured of salvation as well. It is the cross. United Kingdom pastor Alistair Beggs tells a story of him kind of imagining what it was like for this thief on the cross after this took place within the scriptures. He says, can you imagine this guy? He'd never been to Bible study. He'd never been baptized. He knew nothing about church membership, and yet he makes it. He, he makes it into heaven, and he comes to the gates, and there's an angel there, and the angel says, hey, what are you doing here? And the man says, I have no idea. He said, well, how'd you get here? He's like, I don't know. I don't know how I got here. He's like, what are you doing here then? He's like, I, I don't know. I don't know how to answer your question. So the angel goes and gets a supervisor angel and brings a supervisor angel over. And, and so he has a conversation with the man too, and he says, with the man, what are you doing? He's like, sir, I, I just answered him. I don't know what I'm doing here. He said, well, just a few questions, and then everything will be fine. Let me just ask a few questions. The first question, are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? And the man says, I've never heard of it in my life. He says, okay, one more question then. Um, what about the doctrine of Scripture? And the man just stands there blankly. He has no answer for it. And eventually, in a bit of frustration, the supervisor angel says, then on what basis are you here? Why are you standing here? And the man says this, I have no idea. The man on the middle cross said that I could come. That's the only reason that I'm here. Beggs closes his story by saying this strong statement. He states that to experience full life of God, salvation through Jesus Christ, we must preach the cross to ourselves every single day. Preach the cross to ourselves every single day. It's because the cross is the only answer for our suffering, for our pain. It's the only answer for eternity. It's our only answer for a full life, true connection with God. Beggs says the minute we start speaking in first person, we've missed it. The minute we begin to say things like, I accepted Jesus into my heart, or I've served people around me, I've never missed a Sunday because I, because I. He says instead we have to speak in the third person. Because he sacrificed himself for me. Because he died on the cross to save me. Because he offered his life in my place. Because he, because he. Jesus is the only answer. And if we don't preach it to ourselves every single day, then we will find ourselves being to trust ourselves, our own work, our own experience, our own good deeds, all of which is a part of this broken humanity that we are a part of. If you take your eyes off the cross, if you miss Jesus' true identity, then Beggs says this, all we can do is give lip service to the effectiveness of the cross, while at the same time living as if salvation depends on us. Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 3. 
he expounds upon and gives helpful observations about the connections between cross, sin, and God's grace. Here's what he says in Romans chapter 3, verse 23 through 27. Paul says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So first and foremost, Paul says, let's put everybody in the same playing ground really quick. Just so you know, everyone's starting from the same place. None of us have lived up to the standard that God has for us. We've all messed up. We've all sinned. And for you to think that perhaps your sin is less than someone else's sin or greater than someone else's sin, it all has the same effect. It's brokenness to one another, brokenness with God, brokenness to creation. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Greek word that Paul uses here is the word amartia. It literally means to miss the mark. It's an archery term. When an archer would shoot an arrow and miss the bullseye, it was missing the mark. It was sin. And so when Paul says all have sinned, we've all missed the mark that God has for us. But then he says this. We've all fallen short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at this present time on the cross. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting, Paul asks. It's excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires work? He says, no, it's excluded because of the law that requires grace. Paul says Jesus is an atoning sacrifice. It's a very interesting word in the Greek as well. It's the word propitiation. It's not just an interesting word, it's an interesting location. What Paul's talking about is in the Old Testament, the Jewish people had something called the Ark of the Covenant. And inside of the Ark, they would carry around the broken Ten Commandments, the broken law of God that would be placed inside of the, the Ark. There was a cover over the Ark, and that would be the location that was called the Mercy Seat. So when the Israelite people would make atonement, they'd have a sacrifice with blood to forgive of the sins for a year. They would place that blood over the top of the altar, the top of the covenant the Ark of the Covenant, and it would pour over both sides. This mercy seat was known as the propitiation. Because as God looked down, he no longer saw the broken law, but he saw instead through the the blood that covered the broken law, the sacrifice that was made for, for forgiveness of sins. It was the propitiation. So when Paul says Jesus is our propitiation, this is what he means. Jesus' blood has covered our sin. Though we all started on level playing ground, we are all sinful people. We have also been justified freely by the grace of Jesus Christ. Here's the big key. This atonement, this sacrifice, it's received by faith, not by works. It cannot be earned. We do not deserve God's love. It's not a wage that we receive based upon our hard work. That is what Paul states. There is no boasting here. We cannot boast because it's not about works. It's about the grace of Jesus given freely to each and every one of us. The only way to look forward to Jesus' return, Beg says, with confidence to look back at his death in faith. Here's why Easter is so special. Had Jesus just died on the cross, there would be nothing to celebrate today. He would be dead and his work in the world would be done. But instead, we believe Jesus did not stay dead, but he actually rose from the grave. And he's alive right now, working in the world. 
In fact, the reason that we have gathered here this morning is in fact a defiance. In the face of a world that is broken and fragmented, we believe that Jesus is at work in the world still today. Amen? He's at work in our lives still today. And we believe that what he is doing will make all things right in the end. So two men on the cross that day, both within the presence of God, within feet of the Savior of the world, and one missed it, but one saw it. Easter begs this final question this morning. Which thief are you? Which thief are you? All have sinned. We're all thieves. We're all criminals. We've all broken God's law. But which thief are you? Do you see Jesus for who he truly is? Or within proximity, we've missed it somehow. In the mid-1950s, British minister W.E. Sangster began to notice some uneasiness in his throat, and he began to drag one of his legs. When he went to the doctor, he found that he had an incurable disease that caused progressive muscular atrophy. His muscles would gradually waste away, his voice would fail, his throat would soon be unable to swallow. Sangster threw himself into his work in British home missions, figuring he could still write, and even more so he could pray. He wrote, let me stay in the struggle, Lord, he pleaded. I don't mind if I can no longer be a general, but just give me a regiment to lead. He wrote articles and books. He helped organize prayer cells throughout England. I'm only in the kindergarten of my suffering, he told those who pitied him. Gradually, Sangster's legs became useless. His voice went completely, but he could still hold a pen, though shakily. On Easter morning, just a few weeks before he died, he wrote a letter to his daughter, and here's what he wrote inside. He said, it is terrible to wake up on Easter morning and have no voice to shout, he is risen. But it would be still more terrible to have a voice and not want to shout. Which thief are you? On this Easter morning, do you see Jesus for who he truly is? the true Messiah, the true King, the one who came to make all things right, not through power and might, but through sacrifice and death on the cross, an ultimate resurrection. Which thief are you this Easter morning? Are you the one who wants to shout with joy, he is risen, because he is the true King? Or have we missed him altogether? This morning, would you pray with me? Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for your grace. Your grace that is offered to every single person in the room here this morning. And to be clear, God, this grace is not something that can be earned. It's not something that we, that we receive because of our hard work or, or righteousness or piety. But instead, this is a grace that can only be received. And it's made possible through Jesus' blood. So I pray for every single person in the room here this morning, God. I pray especially for those of us who have been in the church perhaps for a long time, have been within proximity of Jesus, but we've never truly seen him for who he actually is. We've missed it altogether. I pray, God, that today, this Easter, that we would decide to love you and serve you and follow you with our whole hearts. Thank you. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. 
It's in your name that we pray. And everyone said, amen.